right. Welcome back to Last Week in Medicine. It's uh, October 27th, 2021. Great, great to see you again, Dr. Rupp. And Dr. Jenkins, good to be back. Thanks for having me as always. I don't know if am, I guess I'm a perma guest. You're in charge. So I'm, I'm def- thanks for having me. Glad yeah. to be here. Happy to spend this time with you. I'm always happy when you're here. Um, so so yeah, it's been it's been about a month since our last episode, and there's been some some interesting stuff that's come out. Um, how have things been with you? Things have been good. Gus is growing um, exponentially as they tend to do. Or maybe not. He's growing like he's supposed to. That's not accurate. But he's you know on, yeah, he's on the the 80th he's percentile. Like Twenty feet tall now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, not exponentially, but he um, cruises. I think the term mm-hmm. is he. Um, babbles and Mm. like does sort of manipulate us now you know that's been interesting to see like Mm -hmm. he knows a cry gets something so Mm -hmm. like the crying has it has increased although it's not serious crying and you generally know what he wants now which is you know good in some ways but also yeah he's you know machiavellian in some ways (laughs) that's overstated he's already plotting your overthrow (laughs) it's like stewie yeah No, I love the babble phase, though. That's really fun when they start doing that and they're just goofballs. Yeah. So so our baby's now eight months old. And so she's a little bit behind Gus. So it's kind of yeah. So it's fun to watch him go through these milestones. And, you know, so she's crawling now and um, and babbling a lot. And she's just she's really funny, baby. So we're hoping, you know, we're, we're kind of hoping that we'll be able to adopt her um in the next few months we'll see what happens there but it's been it's been fun having another baby in the house spices things up a bit in the house huh yeah yeah I and mean, definitely less sleep which you know we just you just get used to yeah yeah um so last week um my family we did a, a haunted mm-hmm. house spook yeah. alley uh, that included our part of our living room and kitchen and the backyard and uh so it was kind of fun to have 200, you know, strangers, some of them wandering through my house, but uh, we were doing a fundraiser for Stenosis Research Foundation and we raised about $3,000. So that was pretty fun. Um, yeah, I was, yeah. I went to Moab, so I missed it, but um, it sounds like it was a great success. Yeah. True friend. <laughs> uh, we're only podcast co-creators, dude. We're not friends. <laughs> oh, that hurts. <laughs> In any case, fall is uh, here. Fall's been great. It's snowing a ton too. It's like been the snowiest October on record. People are skiing at Alta like it's open, like it is tracked oh, really? to all heck. Wow. Yeah. Um, I have not been out yet, but we'll start talking about that soon, right? We have to, you have to check in on my skiing. You know, it's about all we every have. Time. Yeah. And the jazz. We'll bring that back someday. The jazz one last Take note. night. Yep. <laughs> We're hitting all the classics. <laughs> Okay. Hands back together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, feels good. Yeah. All right. Well, today uh, we're going to go through uh, you know a few articles. Um, there's there's a couple that came out end of September um, that were related to the use of race in the uh, in, in these calculators for GFR. And I think with last year, you know, 2020 was definitely a year of, of racial reckoning. You know, we had. Um, the, the protests after George Floyd's death and we, you know, uh, kind of uh, a lot more discussion and interest in this. And, and, and I think it's a, a very good thing. And, and a lot of people, you know, especially medical students were starting to like ask more questions, like, why do we use race 
you know, in a lot of these medical algorithms. And, and, you know, it's, it's caused me to do a lot more reading and reflection because I think when I learned a lot of this stuff in medical school, I just kind of accepted it all at face value. And, you know, people are like, yeah, so when you're, you know, doing this ASCVD calculator, you know, you put if they're black or not black or white, and then it spits out this number for their, you know, their CVD risk. And, and I didn't, it didn't even like cross my mind that that might be kind of, you know, weird that because really what it comes down to is race is a social construct right and it it really you know maybe it correlates in some ways with genetic ancestry certainly but it's very imprecise so it's really not a biological category so why do we categorize people for these biological purposes right when we're talking about what medications we use what normal values are all of these things um you know, it gets, it gets very messy. And so I've been trying to like find clarity there. And I think this was an interesting set of articles that, that talked about this. And, and a lot of this came out of, um, you know, in 2020 with, with all of this discussion about race and medicine and which is great. Yeah. I mean, totally needed, you know, not to just jump in, but like, right. It's just super interesting to think back that like, there was never even a thought that crossed our minds. And I think, you know, most of the medical establishment, yeah. Like, is this appropriate? Is mm-hmm. this part of it? Like, right. With race as a, mostly a social st- or being a social construct. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it a part of objective medical calculations? And I think we've just even thinking about it and questioning about it is a step in the right direction. These papers are a step in another, in a, another step in the right direction. Yeah. And it's good. We're talking about them. Mm-hmm. And so I think kind of where this came out of was, you know, some institutions started looking at the use of race in calculating an estimated GFR, which is a pretty important thing that we we look at because, you know, African-Americans do have a disproportionate burden of um, chronic kidney disease and end-stage renal disease. And so making sure that we're being accurate in, in reflecting what their GFR is. And so some institutions actually started just straight up you know, removing race from their calculators. Um, And so this kind of led national um, bodies like the National Kidney Foundation and the American Society of Nephrology to establish a task force to actually look at this and say, should we keep using race when we calculate GFR? And the history of this, you know, it, it is interesting. So kind of one of the first GFR estimations came out back in the 70s. It was the Cockroft Galt equation. And, you know, they did measure actual um, GFR, you know, using, you know, iothalamate or inulin. I don't know what they used back then, but they measured the GFR and then they, you know, used all these variables to try to come up with a way to estimate GFR without actually having to do those clearance studies. But in that cohort, it was only white people. And so then that was kind of the only thing available for a while in 1999 is when we had the MDRD um, GFR equation come out. And that one had some um, black patients in it, 197, which was 13% of that study. And, and that's where they found that if they included race in their GFR calculations as one of the variables, it actually did make the equation more accurate. And, and they noted that black patients had a slightly higher creatinine on average for a given GFR than non-black patients. And they postulated that this was possibly due on average to black persons having higher muscle mass than white persons, but they didn't actually measure muscle mass in those studies. And they don't really provide any 
solid evidence for that claim, but that's kind of become like medical lore as like a justification for, for using that. And so I guess the risk with this, if we're going to, you know, use this race coefficient is that you might overestimate renal function in black people. And so, and that might lead to delays in diagnosis of CKD and listing people for transplant. So that's why it's an issue. Um, in 2009 is when they came out with the CKD epi equation, and that still contained race as a variable, but it had a much larger population of black patients in that cohort. There was 2,600 black patients, which was 31% of the study population. And then in 2012, there was an updated version of the CKD epi equation that uses creatinine and cystatin C. Um, and this was a much more accurate equation, but it still used a race coefficient. And so some have proposed removing race from that equation because it might be overestimating renal function in black people. Others assert that race captures these non-GFR determinants of serum creatinine. And so if we remove it from the calculator, you know, we, we may actually be less accurate and we might, you know, perpetuate other disparities. And so really that's why, you know, this task force was set up. Um, and so these two papers that were in the New England Journal that we'll inc include in the show notes were, were basically looking to see if you could create new GFR equations that didn't include race that could still be as accurate at predicting GFR. So the, the authors of the first article, and this was Dr. Inker et al., um, they created some new GFR equations that used either creatinine alone or creatinine plus cystatin C but then remove that race coefficient. And then they compared them to the 2009 equation that was just creatinine and the 2012 equation that used cystatin C and creatinine. And what they found is that the 2009 equation um, that includes age, sex, and race, it does overestimate GFR in black people by about 3.7 milliliters per minute per body surface area. Um, they found that the 2012 equation that includes the statin C and race was less biased and more accurate. Um, when they omitted race from that 2012 equation with the statin C, it, it did underestimate GFR in Black Americans compared to their measured GFR. Um, so then they came up with this new equation that used age and sex and omitted race, um, and they found that it it also underestimated GFR in Blacks and overestimated GFR in non-Black patients. And then they had another new equation that they came up with that used creatinine and cystatin C, and it was more accurate than the new equations that used only creatinine. Sorry, that was probably just like very confusing. And, and I honestly was very confused reading these papers, but the, the take home from that paper was, you can remove race as a coefficient but if you don't have a cystatin C, then it's pretty inaccurate, imprecise. And so cystatin C really did make their new equations more accurate. The second study, and this was Dr. Shu et al., um, took a different approach. So they used a sample um, from this database called the Chronic Renal Insufficiency Cohort and they to, uh, to refit some regression models of GFR with age, sex, and either creatinine or cystatin C as predictors of GFR. And then they compared the accuracy and predictive bias of those models um, if they added either black race or percentage of African ancestry as a predictor. And they found that in models of estimated GFR based on creatinine that excluded race-based predictors, they did have a lot more bias and diminished accuracy. But in the equations that had cystatin C, 
race had no effect on the predictive accuracy of the EGFR. So the take home from their article was also that cystatin C makes the, the estimated calculated GFR much more accurate. And so, um, so with that information, I think, you know, for me, what I learned was we should really be using cystatin C as much as possible. Um, it's, it is, you know, it can be an expensive test. It's not readily available in every clinic, um, but where available and when possible, we should be using cystatin C to estimate GFR because it is much more accurate. Around the same time these articles came out, this task force from the National Kidney Foundation and the American Society of Nephrology did come out with some recommendations. And the, and the big recommendation that they made um, was that we should actually use the CKD epi equations from 2009 and 2012 and refit them without race as a variable. So that is going to be kind of the recommendation going forward is that we don't use race as a variable for GFR. But I think that there's still some work that needs to be done to make sure we're still getting an accurate estimation. And that's definitely going to involve using cystatin C. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, I'm still left with, you know, questions here, I guess. Um, is it fair to say then that creatinine is affected by race? I mean, it seems like we, you know, we acknowledge that race is primarily a social construct and that the genetic differences between race races are minuscule, but I'm just, I struggle a little bit still with how to square that with uh -huh. then, but the creatinine does seem to truly, you know, have some correlation with race uh -huh. and does not estimate GFR accurately without a race coefficient. So, uh -huh. you know, I guess, what do you, what do we say to that? Yeah, no, I think that that's why this, I think, is still debated among uh, physicians and scientists, you know, and, and why I think this these equations have hung around for so long is, yeah, in these original cohorts, they did find that for an average GFR, the creatinine was higher in people who identified as black. And I don't think we have good explanations for that because, um like I said, it's people who identified as black and being black by itself doesn't really tell you what that person's genetic ancestry is. So it's really hard to tie it back to a genetic or biological basis. Right. But there is something there. Right. We right. just, we just don't understand it. We don't know why that is. And so, you know, that's why these corrective coefficients were created. Um, I do think it's good though, that the science is trying to move in a, in a mm. direction where we can try to just be accurate without even using race as a consideration. Um, and it's really just one thing that's hopefully going to help reduce racial disparities, but obviously there's a lot more that needs to happen in medicine besides just correcting these algorithms, right? There's, there's like so many factors that affect racial discrimination in medicine that go way beyond just these, you know, these algorithms and calculators, you know, it's, it, there's a lot more systemic issues that we also need to tackle. Right, right. We're not even, yeah, we're focusing on a very, this is a very myopic sort of way to address racism in medicine, medicine and structural racism. Um, you know, this just brings to mind the, the paper that showed that pulse oximetry is not as accurate in mm -hmm. black patients. You know, we're, we're not even, we don't, you know, uh, make medical equipment that's, you know, like even our medical equipment, you know, has structural racism in it. So yeah, yeah. I think, um, acknowledging that trying to investigate it and, you know, addressing our checkered past is absolutely 
critical. Um, uh-huh. And this is just a small piece of that, like you've said. But yeah, I, I also, you know, continue to grapple a little bit with, yeah, like, well, the creatinine is, you know, does seem, there does seem to be something there. So, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I think like we're saying, asking the questions and thinking about this is good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But continues to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it spills over into like every specialty. And I think there's lots of organizations that are, they're kind of wrestling with these questions right now. So I think we'll, we'll see more of this in the future. And, and I think it's overall a positive development for medicine. Yeah. So agreed. So, yeah. So what do you got first, Dr. Rope? Yeah. Yeah. So switching gears a bit, um, as, as at least one out of two thrombologists here mm. on the podcast, we felt that we had to talk about, well, we, I guess we have two thrombosis papers this week of course we we do of course we do well anyway mine's mine's um you know not that exciting uh this i looked at long-term risk for major bleeding during extended oral anticoagulant therapy for first unprovoked venous thromboembolism a systematic review and meta-analysis that was published in the annals of internal medicine on september 14th um online uh it's by dr khan and colleagues and um was the, the group is called the Majestic Collaboration. Mm. So cool name. Just cherry pick all the letters per usual. <laughs> yeah. um, so this paper looks to address sort of the age old question of how long to anticoagulate after a venous thromboembolic event. Um, specifically, they are interested in a the first unprovoked venous thromboembolic event. How long is the right amount of anticoagulation? They're not actually looking at that, but they're trying to help us understand the bleeding risk of potentially extending anticoagulation past an initial three or six months, really six months. So, you know, um, generally we as a group, and, and I think my personal practice has been to anticoagulate these people for, you know, send them out with anticoagulation from the hospital, say definitely three months, and you could consider indefinite anticoagulation based on bleeding and clotting risk. And we are trying to answer the question of how much bleeding risk these patients have. Mm-hmm. Um, so an important question, um, a few sort of background points, um, the overall risk for recurrent venous thromboembolic disease or events after discontinuation of anticoagulant therapy for the first unprovoked or weakly provoked venous thromboembolic event is 10% at one year and 36% at 10 years. So that was sort of the, that's a important piece of information that these guys cite that, you know, um, you stop anticoagulation and 10% within a year will get a second clot and 36% within 10 years will get a second clot. So that's what we're talking about, um, weighing that versus the bleeding risk. Um, additionally, we know that extended anticoagulation, um, correlates or is, is, you know, gives you an 80% reduction in risk of recurrent venous thromboembolic events, although they don't cite if that's absolute or relative. And I think it probably is relative, um, but the long-term risk of, of rebleeding with anticoagulation is, is not well established. So again, we're trying to, you know, determine that risk. Um, so these guys did, like we said, a, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, the studies included had to be randomized controlled trials or prospective cohort studies. And they included patients with, again, the first venous thromboembolic event that was unprovoked or provoked by a minor transient risk factor as defined by the ISTH, which is the International Society for what Thrombosis and Hemostasis. hemostasis. <laughs> okay. Um, And then they had to have a treatment arm that received anticoagulation for a minimum of six additional months on top of the six 
first months, and they had to report major bleeding during that extended period of anticoagulation. So those are the studies that they looked for, RCTs or prospective cohort studies that included those patients. Um, the primary outcome was the first major bleeding event, and that's also defined by ISTH, um, but is defined by a hemoglobin drop of greater than or equal to two points, transfusion of greater than or, or at least two, two units of PRBCs um, if it occurs in a critical site, um, and if it's fatal or contributes to death, the, the bleeding risk. That's how we say, you know, we say those are major bleeding events that include those criteria. Um, for secondary outcomes, they looked at intracranial bleeding and fatal bleeding. So um, there were 27 studies included, um, 17,202 patients, and they state that um, the studies seem to have a low risk of bias. Um, the incidence of major, major bleeding per 100 person years was 1.74 events among 9,982 patients receiving warfarin in the first year um, and 1.12 among 7,220 patients receiving DOACs. So 1.74 versus 1.12. And sorry, I said the first year, but that's per 100 person years mm -hmm. after an initial six months of anticoagulation. The five-year cumulative incidence of major bleeding with warfarin was 6.3% and data were insufficient to estimate the incidence of major bleeding beyond one year with DOACs, which is a huge criticism of this study. And we'll talk more about that later, but 6.3% percent within five years um, was the cumulative incidence of major bleeding with warfarin. They did some pre-specified subgroup analyses and the major bleeding was statistically significantly higher in females in the warfarin group that did not that was not borne out in the in the DOAC group and then in both groups when patients were older than 65 years old had a creatinine clearance of less than 50 if they had a history of bleeding if they had concomitant use of antiplatelet meds and with a hemoglobin of 10 less than 10 so all of those factors were statistically significantly associated with more major bleeding, mm -hmm. um, which is also not super shocking, but, yeah. um, you know, good to reinforce. So, um, the pooled case fatality rate of major bleeding was 8.3% in the warfarin group and 9.7% in the DOAC group. Um, I don't, I don't, didn't like whenever we're talking about meta-analyses and reviews, the stats are always a little bit cloudy for me. And they actually presented the numbers for the case fatality rates and they didn't add up when I did them myself. And I'm not saying that I like uncovered a methodologic <laughs> problem here, but like I am saying, I don't understand exactly how, how, they, got they, that how they got those numbers. And that and those, does seem those, important. Yeah. And those, I mean, those seem like very high case fatality rates to me. Right. And, and so I'm thinking like, are these, these are just the patients that had bleeding of those patients you know, 8%. Yeah. Died. Well, so two DOAC patients died with bleeding and like, you know, I think it's table four or something. Uh -huh. Um, and I don't, yeah, like, you know, it's two fatal bleeding in the DOAC groups out of 40 major bleeding events. So like, mm -hmm. I don't know how that's 9% or 10%, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I'm sure either. they're doing something, you know, legitimate. <laughs> um, but it was two patients who died from DOAC bleeding events and 11 um, from and 11 or no 15 from warfarin out of 207 major bleeding oh, events okay. um and that's i think you know a a subgroup of the the total bleeds mm -hmm. um somehow so yeah I, again it was a little, little bit cloudy there on on the numbers um not to say that we don't believe them but it does seem high but is and is important yeah um so you know overall here they they talk about um you know, 
a higher than 3% per year risk of major bleeding previously has been considered high risk and that you should not indefinitely anticoagulate. And so, you know, the cumulative incidence of major bleeding with warfarin was 6.3%, you know, with, with longer than six months. So it's like, are all patients then higher bleeding risk, you know, than we would historically have classified. I don't typically get into the weeds that much with patients on like, you know, at 10 years or at one year, you have a 10% risk of clotting at five years, you have a 6% risk of bleeding. Mm -hmm. What do you choose? You know, it's more of a gestalt. Um, But I do think the no, like having those, you know, sort of concepts in your mind of like, okay, at one year, you're probably, you have a 10% risk of clot. And at five years, you have a 6% risk of bleed is beneficial. And then, you know, if these things that they've found, that we've previously sort of known and discussed, you know, older age, reduced renal function, you know, plant antiplatelet use, et cetera. If, if they're on those things, then definitely think twice about indefinite anticoagulation. You know, I think this isn't like really hard hitting sort of new, like super, I mean, it is important. Um, but I think the reason that I wanted to read about it and talk about it is just that it does give us some framework and numbers for, for considering indefinite anticoagulation after unprovoked, you know, venous thromboembolic events Mm -hmm. and that having those numbers can be beneficial, but, um, you know, really bummed about the DOAC data. Like that's what we want. You know, we think there (laughs) might be less bleeding with DOACs. Like there's been signals retrospectively, um, you know, that way for several years now, even with the original, you know, AFib trials. Yeah. So I think we have to stay tuned for that. And I, I, you know, sort of anecdotally always think that DOACs are a little bit better from a bleeding standpoint for several reasons, assuming normal renal function, normal body habitus, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think the data for warfarin is, is pretty good and beneficial and can help us inform these discussions. But what do you think, Steven? All of those things. Yeah. I think it would be, it would be nice to have that five-year data on DOACs in the future, but I, I was, you know, I, the numbers did seem high to me and, but I guess, you know, being a hospitalist, like we see people come in with bleeding complications all the time. So I guess it's not super surprising that the people have bleeds that often, but like, you know, it, it, it's hard to, cause you can't, it's hard to generalize this, you know, heterogeneous population of people with VTE to like the patient sitting in front of you. And I do think you want to try to like, you know, tailor your plan to that person based on whatever information you can get from trials, like, or from studies like this. And like you pointed out, like, you know, if your person's got reduced renal function or they're old or they're on, you know, antiplatelet therapy, like, you know, then you need need to make some (laughs) modifications to your plan and your recommendations. You know, if you got a young person who has an unprovoked VTE event, um, you know, with, with a low risk of bleeding, like that's someone that, you know, if it was me personally, like I would probably stay on it for a bit, but then I can also see why some young people be like, I don't want to be on this pill for the rest of my life. And DOACs are not cheap. So, you know, there are, there and are the, I mean, how much do you have to, like, I recently ran into this with like a river guide, you know, it's like mm-hmm. how much of a, like, yeah. are you sending whitewater rapids in a helmet? Like, cause yeah. you know, like that's got to enter the equation, right. you know, like, I mean, like I had a lady that was a horseback rider and I was like, well, I probably wouldn't ride horse horses for the next three months while you are on this medication. And, and then you need to talk to your doctor about whether you're going to keep stay on it after three months. I do love that we are not involved with this. Honestly, (laughs) (laughs) we send them out on anticoagulation. And then I think the really hard decision eventually comes. These are tough decisions. I think, yeah, where we're making decisions is more like if someone comes in with a bleed, 
um, what are we going to do with their medications? And in and, and those situations, it can be hard too, because there are good data to show if you withhold those medications, those patients have bad outcomes later, you know, and so depending on what kind of bleeding it is, you know, for the most part, I, I do try to get people back on their anticoagulation. Cause I think at the end of the day, like we can usually save someone from a bleed, not a, not a bad head bleed and, you know, and not like a really, you know, profuse GI bleed, I guess. But for the most part, like the people we admit with bleeds do just fine. They are in the hospital. There are comorbid, you know, so there's morbidity with that and we're giving them blood transfusions maybe, and that's not fun. And there's risk with that too. Um, but like, I, I personally would probably rather like have a, a, a GI bleed than die from a PE, but it's hard to know what, what, mm -hmm. what they're going to have. Right. You mm -hmm. can't predict that very well. And so you're kind of constantly doing that cost benefit analysis with your patient. And I think they definitely need to be a part of that conversation. And it's so hard to include them. It is good to just have some numbers, mm -hmm. I think, you know, mm -hmm. like, Oh, I think your risk is a little bit higher of this than that. It's like, well, you know, what does that even mean? So that was the reason to talk about this. Sure. And um, yeah, always shared decision making. Yeah, cool. Well, since we just did one thrombosis paper, maybe I'll jump in with my other, my, my thrombosis paper. Yeah, so yeah, the real so, no, hitting stuff. Well, not about that. But <laughs> last week, or last month, whenever that was, you know, last episode, we talked about the, uh, the active four attack remap cap trials for, <laughs> for heparin and, and COVID. And, you know, I, I feel like this is not going to go away, but um, um, are we going to do the paper every, every time one every comes one the, out, is this going to be the new tocilizumab? You know, or do we just yeah. wait six months and then finally get, we could wait six months, <laughs> wait for the meta-analysis. Yeah. But I think, you know, this is a paper that's worth discussing and it's a heck of a lot easier to understand than the uh, the last one. This is called the HEP COVID trial. The full name is Efficacy and Safety of Therapeutic Dose Heparin versus Standard Prophylactic or Intermediate Dose Heparins for Thromboprophylaxis in High-Risk Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19. This was published online uh, October 7th, I believe in JAMA Internal Medicine. And it's a, it's, it's a well-designed trial it is a lot smaller than the last one. The last one was like basically three trials in one. And that one had like, you know, 2000 plus patients. This one has 257 patients, a multi-center trial uh, where they were including patients who were hospitalized with COVID. They had to be on oxygen and they had to have an elevated D-dimer at least four times the upper limit of normal. They excluded patients who already needed to be on full dose anticoagulation or dual antiplatelet therapy. Uh, they excluded people who'd had any bleeding in the last month or had active GI or intracranial cancer. Um, and then there were some other exclusion criteria as well. Uh, what they did is they randomized people to therapeutic Lovenox, um, one milligram per kilogram twice a day or prophylactic heparin um, based on, you know, whatever the standard was at the hospital. And then for patients with a cranning clearance less than 30, but more than 15, they gave them 0.5 milligrams per kg twice a day. If their creatinine clearance dropped below 15, then they got switched to an unfractionated heparin infusion. Uh, and then the main outcome they were looking at was uh, a composite of VTE, arterial thrombosis, and death from any cause within 30 days. Uh, so they randomized 130 patients to therapeutic dose anticoagulation. Four of those did not end up getting the study drug, two withdrew uh, from the trial. And then they had 127 patients in the prophylactic arm. Uh, of which 61% got prophylactic dose heparin and 39% got intermediate dose. 
Um, overall, I'd say the patients were pretty well balanced and diverse. There were some, you know, differences in a few few things, but um, their their average or mean D dimer um, for the study was three thousand eight hundred thirty seven, and so um, you know, looking at kind of and that was nanograms per milliliter. Sometimes D dimers are reported with different units, so it might be like 0.5 is your cutoff, and so like this would be like 3.8 or something. But pretty high D dimers. Um, and then two thirds of them were just on nasal cannula. Those are kind of like your standard hospitalized patients. And then a third of the patients were on a higher level of support. And, and a lot of those were in the ICU, but only four to 6% of the patients were on like an actual ventilator. Most of them were just getting like high flow. Some were getting BiPAP. Um, so the primary outcome occurred in, uh, 41.9% of patients in the prophylactic arm versus 28.7% in the therapeutic dose arm with a p-value of 0.03. So uh, God bless you for uh, using uh, frequentist statistics because uh, we can definitely understand p-values better than that Bayesian posterior probability stuff. But well, we know the cutoffs. Well, at least we know the arbitrary cutoffs. <laughs> yeah. So yay, the p-value is less than 0.05. Um, yeah. So so there, there, this was a positive study, you know, the therapeutic dose arm did uh, reduce that primary outcome, but this was completely driven by a reduction in VTE. So the VTE rate was 29% in the uh, prophylactic arm and 10.9% in the uh, uh, therapeutic arm. Um, and this was also largely driven by a reduction in symptomatic DVT. Um, so there, that was statistically different, but there wasn't a statistical difference in rates of, of uh, asymptomatic proximal DVT or asymptomatic PE. Those were statistically the same. Um, and there's also no difference in death between the groups, although numerically they looked different as 25 versus 19%, but the p-value was not statistically significant. Um, there was also no difference in major bleeding. And then when they looked at the patients that were in the ICU, kind of in a subgroup analysis, there was no benefit in the primary outcome. And that, that's similar to other trials we've seen when the patients are sick enough to be in the ICU, I think the damage is done and the benefit of this anticoagulation is, is pretty minimal. Um, so does this trial change the landscape? Um, I think they showed that in high-risk patients, so their D-dimer is very high, you know, if you put them on therapeutic anticoagulation, you do see a reduction in VTE. So I think, you know, that makes sense. You know, finally a COVID anticoagulation paper that kind of makes sense. Um, and how does this paper differ from the last one we talked about, the, that big, you know, three-study three platform trial? So that was much larger, 2,200 patients, um, and interestingly had a much lower rate of VTE. They only had That's two, a high rate of VTE, even for the therapeutically anticoagulated patients. Yeah, to have 10%. Yeah, 10% had a, Sorry. even with, you know, you're right. No, you're totally right. So, you know, 2% of people in that other big trial had had clots with standard prophylaxis versus 1% in the therapeutic arm. And that was a much bigger trial. So you would, you know, think that there'd be less confounding and, you know, maybe more reliable results from that. So I think it, it is odd that, you know, 29% of patients in this, in this trial with who were on standard prophylaxis had a VTE event or an ATE event. Um, I mean, that's a pretty big difference. Mm -hmm. um, but part of that is, you know, they were just looking at high-risk patients, so high D-dimer. 
Um, and then another interesting thing they did was screening ultrasounds at day 14. So I think they were picking up some asymptomatic clots that definitely affected those numbers, but the overall rate of asymptomatic DVTs was still pretty low. Um, I think the other difference with, between this trial and the bigger one was the active 4A trial had a higher bleeding rate in the therapeutic arm, whereas Which this one, sense. yeah, I mean, that definitely makes sense. In this one, there was not a statistically different it, you know, statistically significant difference in bleeding, but it's also a smaller trial. So maybe mm -hmm. it just wasn't powered to show that. I don't know. Um, and then just like in the active 4A trial, there was no difference in mortality in this trial. So for me, it's, it's not like super compelling. I'm personally not going to change my practice, but if someone wanted to give a COVID pneumonia patient with a super high D-dimer therapeutic anticoagulation to reduce their risk of symptomatic DVT, like I guess this trial supports that decision. Like, I, I, I don't think I could fault them for that. I personally am not going to do that because I think I'm not sure it's worth the bleeding risk still. But um, it will be interesting to see because there's a lot of these trials out there. So we'll keep seeing more results on this. And, and then there'll be, you know, like we said, some kind of meta-analysis. And it'll be interesting to see this, this trial data be kind of aggregated because it is kind of a smaller study. But it's definitely a positive study. So... I mean, what also, you know, at some point, the practicality has to come into question, too. You know, I think once your treatment gets too algorithmic and yeah. like check the if this right. do that, if right. this lab do that. And what's the difference between a D-dimer of, you know, 3.8 versus 2 point, you know, like yeah. I don't remember what the yeah. cutoffs were, yeah. but like, you know, I don't know, like using stuff like that. I mean, I think just hearing from, you know, our arch nemesis, IMC at one point <laughs> they, yeah, they had some sort of flow sheet arch that nemesis. had 18 lab values and, you know, give tocilizumab if CRP is this, if CRP is between. Well, we have that too. I know. We have that for the IL-6 stuff <laughs> and for like baricitinib, we have cutoffs for things like that. Um, but the point is, but yeah, it can know. get a little too cookbooky and it's like, it can be a little brainless too. Right. Like, look and we're at not the saying patient. That's the problem. Right. Look right. at the patient, look in, at front the patient in front of you. And it just feels artificial, you know, like at some, like you have to use clinically meaningful cutoffs for your therapies. And if it's yeah. like just, and there's quite a few exclusion criteria in these trials too. So you can't just like willy nilly put everyone on therapeutic anticoagulation. Like you need to make sure that they're a safe candidate for it. Cause there's a lot of reasons not to do it. <laughs> so, and what, I don't, I, maybe I missed this. What was the duration of anticoagulation? I mean, what's like oh, anecdotally, these patients are leaving the hot, getting, you know, prophylactic anticoagulation in the hospital, leaving and coming back with clots. Um, so are you, are some you, of them and some of them are diagnosed in the hospital. Some of them are diagnosed yeah. with presentation in the hospital, but I've yeah. seen a lot of, you know, it's usually they come back with something. I've yeah. seen a lot of clots a week or two later. So are you anticoagulating them for 30 days? Cause you know, that's no. going to, yeah, there, I mean, there was a trial that looked at that, the action trial out of Brazil and yeah, there was no benefit. Right. So in these folks, I think you're anticoagulating while they're in the hospital. I can't remember exactly what this trial did though. So I don't want to misspeak, but yeah, but I'm not but like the last trial the, the big active four trial did like 14 days or yeah. something. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, so I think, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to change based on this small study, but this, you know, some people will probably so. it's out there it's out it's, there yeah not unreasonable to leap to think about potentially yeah, yeah. but it also Definitely. i wonder if yeah they're just if they are selecting some subgroup of patients that's super high risk for clotting because if you get 10 percent clot 
on anticoagulation like yeah that's a that's a weird patient group <laughs> in my opinion I sounds mean, gnarly or your heparin drip subtherapeutic for five days and they <laughs> you know fortunately used very little heparin yeah, drips yeah. it was mostly lovinox so but you know there, there could be you know some people have postulated there's quite a bit of heparin resistance in these patients especially the really sick ones and so you know, your Lovenox dosing may not be adequate right. in are those people. Are we, are they, we they did not use 10 A's in here. Q72 hour 10 A's. I mean, the ICU days. here already is. We are not. <laughs> but anyway, what? Anyway, I got another COVID. Another COVID. Yeah. Yay. We're going we're gonna to breeze through this. So this is the, uh, this is effective 12 milligrams versus 6 milligrams of dexamethasone on the number of days alive without life support in adults with COVID-19 and severe hypoxemia or the COVID steroid 2 randomized trial. This was published in JAMA in October 21st. So um, within the last week, maybe our only trial it is, um, there you know, is some signal or data that higher doses of steroids may be beneficial in COVID pneumonia, um, but recovery, which we've talked about ad nauseum, evaluated six milligrams of DEX. So that's sort of what's been decided. Um, I've heard of that study. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, sort of people would argue that the the tocilizumab stuff and the, some of the immunomodulator stuff you know that shows benefit with IL-6 inhibition or what have you argues that you know perfect immunomodulation has not been achieved mm -hmm. with just six of dex so yeah. there's there's potentially room for more steroid is is the thought mm. so this was a randomized controlled trial done in Europe and India it was a multi-center trial um, the inclusion criteria, criteria were confirmed COVID pneumonia, hospitalized, and greater than or equal to 10 liters of supplemental oxygen, and that could be delivered however. So, um, you know, you either had to be on greater than or equal to 10 liters, you could also be on non-invasive mechanical ventilation, or you could be ventilated, um, but that was a, a, a smaller set of patients. Did they have high flow is in there too? I think they Because if you're have... on more than 10 liters, like I would kind of in my brain, put them in the high, like for our patients, we don't let them get that high. Once they're over like six liters, we switch them to high flow right. usually. Right. I mean, 55%, um, 55 and 53% were on um, nasal cannula or mask with a mean flow of, of uh, 22 liters per minute versus 24 that sounds uncomfortable, minute, which is not really open mask, <laughs> probably. Um, yeah. And then, you know, they do talk about FIO2s 58 versus 60. Yeah. Um, and then invasively, you know, ventilated 22 versus 20. But this is, this is not like our, our four liter patients on the no, floor. This is not, these are like sick people. These are sick people yeah. probably yeah, in the unit because like at 10%, you're getting, you know, three to four. At 10, 10 liters, you're yeah. getting three to 4%. So you're around 60%. So yeah. they might, yeah, they weren't necessarily, you know, for sure in the ICU, although um, 78 and 81% were. So yes, yeah. these are not our patients yeah. is, is a reasonable point. Um, so I guess it's also important to know that other therapies, or no, a thousand patients were randomized to either get six or 12 milligrams of daily IV dexamethasone. And it was about half and half, but a few were lost to follow up here and there or what have you per usual. Um, <laughs> other therapies for COVID were at the discretion of the treating clinician, but they were still matched between the, the groups. And there wasn't a lot of other immunomodulation that went on from what I, from what I saw, um, mm. but it is worth noting that, you know, that could be, could be done. I mean, yeah, IL-6, 11 versus 10%, we're getting IL-6 inhibition. So, you know, um, not, a, not super high. Yeah. yeah, not super high and hopefully not a lot of confounding, but yeah. they could have been getting up, getting other stuff. 
Um, the primary outcome was number of days alive without life support at 28 days after randomization. And life support was defined as invasive mechanical ventilation, circulatory support, or renal replacement therapy. Um, and then secondary outcomes were sort of done at different time intervals and looking at different things, but they did the primary outcome at 90 days instead of 28, and they did number of days alive outside the hospital at 98, at 90 days, and then mortality at 28, 90, and number of patients with severe adverse events, which is probably the most important one, but, you know, sort of just different time points and mortality were kind of the secondary outcome. Um, they, they did a power calculation, but then in the, in the discussion, they said our study might have not been powered adequately, so, you know. It never is. It never is. Um, <laughs> The groups, again, were fairly well matched. There was more diabetes in the six milligram dexamethasone group, but otherwise, um, mm. you know, just a few percentage points here and there. On, on I guess that's the lucky. Yeah, most of the important stuff. So um, the results, the median number of days alive without life support for the 12 milligrams of dex group was 22 and uh, 20.5 for the six milligrams of, of dexamethasone group. So after 20, 28 days after randomization, 22 days versus 20.5 days, if that kind of makes sense. Um, close numbers um, and a 95% confidence interval of zero to 2.6 days with a p-value of 0 0.07. So um, close. So close. <laughs> oh, is that why they said it wasn't powered? <laughs> yeah. Because the yeah, p-value was so close. So close. <laughs> Um, you know, then the secondary outcomes were, were more or less, they followed that same category. They were not statistically significant. However, always numerically favored the 12 milligrams of dexamethasone. So, you know, I'm, you're probably not even listening anymore and I'm not going to just read all the numbers, but you know, some of the, like the, the mortality, you know, might be important. So at 28 days, 27.1% of the 12 milligrams of dexamethasone dexamethasone group had died versus 32.3% in the six milligram group. Man, those so, are know, really high mortality rates. Yeah, those are really high mortality rates with an absolute difference of like 5%. Um, and that same thing, you know, applied at 90 days. It was 32 versus 37.7. Um, wow. So none statistically significant, but every single number favored the 12 milligrams of dexamethasone. Numerically favored. So, um, you know, important to, to mention the serious adverse events um 11.3% versus 13.4%, 12 versus 6 and um total overall within the trial 20.5% um versus 25.4 for 12 versus 6 um with so there was no difference there was no difference yeah. and actually even a little bit higher somehow with the 6 milligrams of dex group um yeah. so the 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 take home point for some including like you know Josh Farkas from Pomcrit who we always you know steal stuff from don't ever listen to our <laughs> podcast um it's safe it's not theft if you attribute exactly we attribute you poem crit um it's looks to be safe to give more steroid and might be beneficial although this trial didn't show that not quite statistically statistically significantly did not Mah. show that yeah so um, I don't think this is practice so maybe, changing for us. Yeah. However, in the ICU, if someone's sick and doesn't seem to be getting better and you're like, what the heck? I, you know, have nothing else. But you'd probably want to do it earlier, right? You, right. Wouldn't, you would want, you wouldn't want to wait till they're like, yeah. So that, that's why I think this is a tough thing to do. Cause it's mm -hmm. like, everyone's getting their six milligrams. We're trying to get them their IL six if they're like rapidly worsening, but the sooner you can reduce the inflammation, the better, right? 
Right. And so I think, I think if you're saying like this patient is about to be like, you know, this patient is coming in and is peri, like they're on hundred percent peri ventilator and like, oh my God, this isn't going to go well. Hit them with 20 of decks. Right. Cause like, I think what this showed was there was no worse outcomes. I think that's a logical fallacy in some ways oh. though too, you know, like, oh, it doesn't hurt. So why not? Like, that's not what we, that shouldn't be how we practice medicine. Um, but I don't think it's wrong. Don't so you I'm think just like half of what we do is based on? No, I'm just kidding. I'm uh, just going to be devil's advocate. Well, no, because there was that one trial we reviewed a couple of years ago from the Lancet ARDS trial where they gave 20 milligrams of DEX for like five days or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but and, and it had a improved outcomes in patients with ARDS. Right. And so that's like I mean, that's what these covid patients are. They're just coming in with ARDS even worse. ARDS. And so like, I think based on that trial, you could give 20 of decks and, and be within the realm of good science. <laughs> I mean, I think you could be within the realm of good science with almost like anything with, with COVID. I mean, maybe that's not quite true, but yeah, that is definitely any... false. Okay. Fair enough. But you could give them, <laughs> you could anticoagulate them and give them 20 milligrams of decks. But I wouldn't do that because the, the right. decks is going to give them a freaking GI bleed. Right. So they did see a little bit more GI, like maybe a signal of more GI bleeds in the higher dose steroids. So we should probably be putting all these people on like protonics while they're getting these high doses. But I do think you know, I'm not an ICU doctor, so I'm not going to make these decisions. Right. But like, to me, it's not unreasonable if, if, especially if you don't have access to tocilizumab or baricitinib or these other immunomodulating drugs that have shown some benefit. If you don't have those things, you're not, I don't think you're going to hurt the patient if you just give them a little extra dex and yeah. it might, it might help them. It could help. And, and of course, I'm going to talk to the patient about this and we're going to make a decision together. Say, I'm, I'm shooting from the hip here. <laughs> hey, so uh, we're going to innovate you here in a second. So I need you to make some decisions. Can I give you more dexamethasone? You're right. I'm probably not going to do that. But... And they're going to say ivermectin please oh my gosh that is exactly what they're gonna say and then their family's gonna call is every day and be like why haven't you given them ivermectin yet we've never no, talked about that ivermectin. is definitely staying but yeah no i think uh that's a great take that's where we'll leave it okay. you're, not, you're probably not wrong with with you could think about more all right well that was uh, that's it for this week sorry if you're still listening um we'll be back sometime in the next one week to six months <laughs> And uh yeah, well, goodbye. <laughs>